0: are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, the Roger Moore era comes to a close as we take a look at 1985's A View to a Kill. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bondzilla Podcast. We're going to have a special one for you today. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm Will. And uh, you, you, you're you kind of
1: cutting in the middle there. It's still very low-key, but there's a little bit more bass in your voice yeah. this morning. I mean, it
0: is, it's 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 so, morning. You still We're doing this in the morning, so still kind of waking up, still getting the, the vocal cords all warmed up. Yeah, it's like new NPR, or yeah. old NPR is like, oh, no. And this one's like, hello, everyone. Yeah, like hip and beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. It is a special episode today because we are finally to the final Roger Moore film. Yes. A View to a Kill. Finally. Are you ready? Or do you, uh, have, do you have any uh, unnecessary preamble to go through? Uh, no, not not not
1: today. All right. Uh, go. Got to get to the final, the final more. That's this, the title of this movie, right? Mm. James Bond, the final more. <laughs> The final more. Oh, no.
0: Nevermore. <laughs> and then it's like it's, it's like the final, like, you know, Roger Moore one. Sure. No, it's it's not Nevermore. It's not the final more. It's A View to a Kill. Mm-hmm. Released in nineteen eighty five. Yes. Are we ready to start? With the uh the pre production. Listen, I'm ready to start. I don't know like where you are. Where <laughs> are you? I'm ready to start. Where are you? I'm here. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So they're coming off of Octopussy Mm -hmm. and you know um, there are Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum again this team that's kind of been formed for the past two Bond films once again gets the work starting now, what's interesting about View to a Kill is that for you know, for Free Your Only and for Octopussy, there were some major questions about whether Roger Moore was going to return. Right. In this one, there really wasn't. I, I, Moore was just kind of, he still had his doubts that he wanted the return, but I think he was just in the rhythm of, he enjoyed doing Octopussy, enjoyed right. that cast, he enjoyed working with John Glenn again. I think it was just like in a, in a sense they just discussed it, and this time Moore was just like, "Yeah, I'm, I think I'm good." Like I well, think because technically he was
1: supposed to be off the docket like a couple movies ago. Yeah, he was. Yeah,
0: he, he had intended first at first Moonraker to be his last, and then For Your Eyes Only to be his last, and then but with Octopussy, you know, I think he had his thoughts about leaving. But I think there was less of a, a thought about it. I think he was, once he got negotiations for a new contract with Eon, with Cubby, he was a little bit more willing. I just think it's just the time he had on Octopussy. Yeah, I think I mean, he had a good time.
1: L- listen, uh, they, everybody seems to like him. He's good in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no bigger reasons why he should leave, uh, you know. yeah.
0: And we'll we'll, and we'll talk yeah. about his feelings about like yeah. the, mm-hmm. the end product. But at this time, at the beginning of production, he's he's game for another. Um, even though he is fifty seven at this point, <laughs> um, which I think will come into play a little bit. Um, so Maybaum and um, Michael G. Wilson discuss you know at the end of towards the end of October what book they want to use next, and they decide on the title of one of the infilling short stories from a view to a kill. It's originally announced as "From a View to a Kill" and then later shortened to just "A View to a Kill." Mm-hmm. Um, you'll need that all that overkill. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> the book "View to <laughs> a, from From a View to a Kill" is basically like just one kind of scene of a uh, motorcycle sniper and Bond kind of in like a cat and mouse like kind of chase. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the. Script starts coming along originally inspired by that, but eventually they kind of move away from using that actual motorcycle scene. So the only thing from the View to a Kill short story that's included is the fact that some of the movie takes place in Paris. Mm-hmm. So it was originally intended to feature a little bit of the View to a Kill motorcycle scene, but then it kind of just faded away as the script came about. So again, with these short story films, it, they actually have to come up with you know a plot and Michael G. Wilson at this time is very intrigued by the rising market of microchips and the headquarters of microchips, which is <laughs> Silicon Valley. Um, so he bases sort of the main villain plot off of an actual study that was done at the University of Oklahoma as like a means of like, how would you destroy Silicon Valley? How could you do that? <laughs> Who does this study? Weird college people. Um <laughs> But they kind of based it on, like, oh, like, if this earthquake happened, it would actually destroy the city. And how would you make that earthquake? Well, you could do this.
1: I would love to, like, attend, like, a Bond villain, like, lecture class where, like, everybody's, like, papers are just on, like, these, like, how would you destroy this? How would you move
0: the Eiffel Tower uh,
1: (laughs) to New York and to your lab?
0: (laughs) So with that, it's just the script kind of really comes together um in terms of this story they come up with the the max Zorin character mm-hmm. um and with that we'll kind of talk about the cast we'll mm-hmm. kind of transition to the cast so obviously we have
1: roger moore roger moore coming who back as Bond. should be known is how old 57 57 by by, 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 by this by, point by, yeah by the time the movie yeah. releases yeah all right but yeah
0: so roger moore's returning you know i've gotten a regular cast desmond leland q loax maxwell money penny robert brown is coming back as m but we do have our new cast to get to. And, of course, uh, we have our main Bond villain here, uh, Max Zorin. Mm-hmm. A kind of genius KGB agent, like millionaire who wants to take over. You you're know,
1: you bearing the lead on this yeah. one. Um, so the
0: role was originally written and offered to David Bowie.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right.
0: Um, and David Bowie uh, has said... Uh, in the past that he had almost accepted it but he decided against it uh one because he wasn't a fan of the bond movies and two because in his head he's like i don't want to be watching my stunt double you know falling off a cliff for like five months right right which is right. not really what happens in the movie but yeah. but to an extent he just didn't want to kind of you know he wanted it wasn't to be, his thing it, it wasn't his yeah. thing so he decides to do labyrinth instead um which i think fits him a little bit yeah more.
1: that that does make 100 more sense <laughs> um when did labyrinth come
0: out 1986.
1: Huh, interesting. Okay. Uh,
0: and then they offered it to the musician Sting of Sting and the Police. Mm-hmm. And finally came to uh, Mr. Oscar winner Christopher Walken.
1: Christopher Walken, you want me to play a Bond villain? I can do that in my sleep.
0: <laughs> We're going to hear a lot of that this episode. Oh, you this,
1: you're you are going to be so annoyed by the amount of terrible walking by the end of this
0: yeah. by the end of this um, podcast. So, um, Max Zorin. <laughs> yes. Uh so uh Christopher Walken is the first ever Oscar winner to be cast in a major role in a Bond movie uh, after he had won the Oscar. But I think that's when
1: do you but think like he became known as like like walk-in like you i know, think the, around batman Metru- christopher walken i'm, I'm like i'm like, pretty
0: sure that's around batman Returns. okay all right fair enough because right after that is like he starts doing like snl he starts doing like more comedy stuff. gotcha gotcha okay cool um, so yeah, uh, so that's Christopher Walken. Yeah, and Christopher he's going to be our big, uh, big bad guy for this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and his main henchman is
1: arguably the more most mainstream actor yes. that we've had in this. Like
0: pretty much like the, and it's going to keep going towards that way mm-hmm. once we get into you know obviously the bonds are not going to be star casted, but you are going to start seeing more recognizable faces as we get to like the eighties and nineties. Sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> We also have his main henchman, Mayday, mm-hmm. played hench by woman. Uh, yes, it's a woman or uh, hench horse. For a little bit, for, is, is she may be a horse. I don't know. We'll get to <laughs> we, it in we, the. We'll, uh, we'll talk about yeah. that. Was um, <laughs> uh, played by um, famous model and actress and recording artist Grace Jones, mm-hmm. uh, who was a very famous like eighties feminist as well. Very outspoken person. Um, a lot of opinions. A lot of opinions. <laughs> uh, but like a like a everybody says like she's like a, a, like one of those real life characters. It's like if you ever met her, like mm-hmm. the energy she had was always like take over a room. Yeah, Grace Jones told a story that like the first day she was like doing her makeup and she was kind of in control of it and she was like worried like am I putting too much wake makeup on. You know, because she liked that fiery look, but she didn't know if the producers would. And Glenn came in and she's like, no, like do more color, put more red on here, like, mm-hmm. really show yourself. And it's they had a great relationship. And um, she had a habit of showing up the set like at the last minute, like right before shooting was going to start. And mm-hmm. like once she got the set, she was the most professional person in the world. Right. But everybody talks about how it, it was always a sweat. Like you always would kind of wait till that last moment. And then she'd show up and be like, all right, let's go. And yeah, then like she wouldn't yeah. would miss a step. Um, we also have our lead Bond girl in the movie. Yes, Tanya Roberts as Stacy Sutton. Right. Okay. So Stacy actually has, a, or I'm not Stacey, That's her character name. Tanya actually has kind of an interesting career before this. Um, she was featured on the original Charlie's Angels series, mm-hmm. um, as like kind of the replacement angel when the when the series was kind of like low in the ratings. This like oh, let's get a new angel and like you know hype it up. And though she was well reviewed in the series, it didn't really help the ratings, so it was, it was canceled. She Bounced around Hollywood for a little bit. And then Cubby Broccoli saw her in a movie called The Beastmaster. Oh, no. Beastmaster. No, not that movie. No. And uh, Stacy or uh, Chania Roberts was really hoping this would be kind of a re- revitalizing to her career. Mm-hmm. So she was eager to accept the role.
1: She's like, it didn't work out for Beastmaster. I was basically scrappy-do. On uh, Charlie's Angels, yeah, <laughs> and it didn't work out. Everybody
0: hates Scrappy Doo. We all know she was the poochie of, <laughs> uh, of of uh, Charlie's Angels. And then, uh, so the final casting I want to mention is Patrick Mcnee mm-hmm. as uh, Godfrey Jason McElbow, <laughs> Godfrey Tibbett, He's the like horse trainer that uh, goes with Bond. He pretends to be Bond's chauffeur. Sure, uh, in the beginning of the movie, um, it was Barbara Broccoli's idea. Robert Broccoli is Cubby Broccoli's uh, daughter, mm-hmm. uh, soon to be one of the lead producers on the franchise. This is one of her first times getting involved, uh, so I want to mention that. Um, one of the reasons that she wanted to cast him is she knew that Patrick McKee was one of Roger Moore's best friends. Back in the days um, when Roger Moore was doing TV, when he was on The Saint, Patrick McNey was on the next soundstage filming the, the Avengers spy television series, mm-hmm. uh, and so they would always have lunch together when they were filming those. They were best of friends. And I also want to mention Patrick McNee because he does the narration for all the special features on the Bond DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah, cool. So it was kind of like, oh, that's that's that guy. Mm. So that's pretty good. Go. Cool. All right. So now it's cool. time for those production stories. Yes. Good old production stories. All right, so production starts um, on June 23rd, 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing the pre-credit sequence, which takes place in Siberia, in snowy Siberia. Um, but they film it in... Uh, Concurrently in Iceland and Switzerland. So all the ski stuff and the snowboard stuff is filmed in Switzerland where the kind of more iceberg stuff, um the helicopter crash and the iceberg submarine are all filmed in Iceland. Um so in Iceland they were actually filming on floating icebergs. Mm. Um but, and those can be very dangerous. Yeah. As uh, the because, Titanic. Yes. <laughs> Because icebergs can obviously move, yeah, uh, and they can also or not move in the case of the Titanic. or they can <laughs> fall apart and like you know like really go into the sea or whatever. So they were ready to or distance, not in uh, the case of the Titanic. Yeah, um, so and they didn't want to fall in the water because it was obviously freezing cold. Right. So yeah, so you don't want to fall in that water. So there which were, happened to all were, those people there were on the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> There were times that they had to abandon equipment just because they were, like, in a dangerous situation. and Like, mm-hmm. we're just going to leave this camera here and, like, it'll fall into the water. It'll oh, be Jesus. fine. But nobody was hurt. Yeah. Nobody was hurt. So that's good. Um, they also had a model helicopter for that big helicopter crash. Mm-hmm. They had built three model helicopters for the scene. The first one, the engine failed and crashed into the water. Mm-hmm. The second one exploded on takeoff. And the third one was luckily successful. But they were really sweating out that Wait, third but one. this is these are helicopters though. These are model helicopters. Oh model helicopters. Yeah, miniatures.
1: Oh, I thought <laughs> I thought they were just like regular helicopters. Oh, no. I'm like, dude, the budget must be huge on this movie. that helicopters
0: are just failing left and right. No, they they they, they were miniatures. I was about to have another but
1: questions like, wait, how does a helicopter just explode?
0: <laughs> yeah, so um yeah. so yeah, so the third one was luckily successful. Mm. Uh, but the first two, you know, did not survive. The last thing I want to note, which I did not know until I did some research on this movie, this is the first major depiction of snowboarding in a major motion picture.
1: Yes, I did know this. Yeah, because I did
0: not know that snowboarding was basically invented and majorly like came to PS in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So um, this was actually credited as kind of making snowboarding a little bit more of a mainstream sport because it was featured in this film. Um, so they start on June 24th. Mm-hmm. On June 27th. During the production of Ridley Scott's Legend, starring Tom Cruise... Mm, one, of your fa- one of your favorites. It's not one of my favorites, <laughs> but I, I enjoy some aspects of that movie. Uh, so during the production of Ridley Scott's Legend, mm-hmm. uh, the 007 stage at Pinewood burns down. Mm. Uh, there was some uh, flammable substances left under hot studio lights during lunch period, and those... Hot studio lights, set it on fire. Talk about a hot lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they scramble around to kind of switch the production schedule. Um, and Cubby and his production designer talk to Pinewood, talk to the original builder, see what it would take to rebuild it. And the original builder of it says, if, once, if we can clear the area in a month... I can rebuild it within you know three months, three to four months, and we can get it going again, mm-hmm. and Cubby is like i'll take I'll put whatever money I have to put in to build that stage again. Uh, so they go continue the shoot, and now we're going to talk about one of the most infamous stories from this uh shoot: the jump off the Eiffel Tower. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. a major sequence towards towards the beginning of the movie where Bond and Mayday are finding up the Eiffel Tower, and Mayday jumps off. So this was an idea from the stunt coordinator, one of the stunt coordinators of the film, B.J. Worth, uh, a couple years ago during around the production of For Your Eyes Only. Uh, he was having lunch with uh, Michael G. Wilson, and he was like, "You know, I've always wanted to jump off the Eiffel Tower. So if you ever have an idea, <laughs> if you ever have an idea for that, if you right. like get permission, like I'd love to do it." So when they're starting to write this movie, Wilson calls B.J. Worth. He says, "We're thinking of that Eiffel Tower idea. Do you think it's actually feasible?" So. B.J. Worth gets uh, one of his friends, uh, Don Kaltweet, um, uh who's a young stuntman who specializes in these kind of big jumps, and they decide, they talk about how can we test this, because the problem with the Eiffel Tower is that, like, it's a... You know it's a high distance up, but you have all that metal around you. you don't want to like actually like go down and straight hit it. you want to make sure you can go out you know want to make sure you can hit your parachute out in like a short distance because it is a tall structure but not like extremely tall. it's not like you're jumping off like an out of an airplane where you have a little bit before you have to mm-hmm. put your parachute out You have like you have to how how can we calculate that? How can we do that right right, right. So they test it out by p- going up in a hot air balloon and like basically making a hot air balloon the equivalent height of where they jump. And they do a couple jumps over a field, so they have a little bit more room to work with mm-hmm. uh, safety. So they do about 22 jumps, uh, and Michael G. Wilson helps out because he, Michael G. Wilson actually does some calculus, one of the uses of calculus in real life. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not bitter about taking calculus in high school. They <laughs> um, <laughs> uses some calculus to basically say, like, you have maybe about, like, three, three and a half seconds before you want to get that parachute out based on, like, where you're jumping and your velocity and all this sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, math. Yeah, so eventually they figure out, yes, it's about three seconds. If they jump out like far enough, they can jump off the Eiffel Tower. Basically, they learn that like the way that the air kind of changes in pitch after three seconds, they kind of do it enough where they know exactly what that lo- sounds like. You're right. And that's when they kind of go for it. Um, so they know it's feasible. Now it's getting the permission to do it. So they enjoyed working with uh, the French um, film industry on Moonraker. So they did have some connections in that industry still, but... It was a very big deal to jump off the Eiffel Tower. It was not something that the French government was very keen on people doing. Uh, they didn't feel like it was safe. They feared there would be copycats trying to do it. Um, but uh, Michael G. Wilson and B.J. Worth went to basically the, a big meeting of all these French officials, showed the math, showed the tests, said it was all good. So eventually they got approval. Um, but it was almost immediately shut down about two days before... Um, they were scheduled to shoot to a man and a woman coupled, some random daredevils decided to do their own jump off the Eiffel tower. Okay. And the French government almost shut it down. They were like, you're already getting copycats. People are hearing about this scene. Uh, you know, we're not, we're, we, yeah. not going to do it. And then basically, uh, Glenn and Wilson are like, no, this has nothing to do with us. You know, they've been doing, you know, this is like, a, they figure out that's a couple that's been doing this all around the world, like different landmarks. So it has nothing to do with us. We're good to go. we we're, we're we can do it.
1: Yeah, that man was Tom Cruise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there's a lot of you know variables about jumping off the Eiffel Tower. You gotta get the good. You have yeah, the hope for good weather. They put a platform out so they can get a little bit more of a jump out. Right. Um. So luckily enough, they get the perfect weather. They they get that platform out nice. They have three jumps scheduled just in case like cameras get missed or something happens if it does, the shot doesn't look good. So, B.J. Worth is the main stuntman on this movie, so he gets the first shot. Don Keltweet would be the second one, and then there's a third stuntman as well, just in case. So, B.J. Worth, he's achieving his goal, I guess. He He's always wanted to jump off the Eiffel Tower, apparently. So, he jumps off, he yells, this one's for you, Cubby. And he jumps off and has the perfect jump. Like, it's the exact jump you see in the movie.
1: And then they're like, yeah, but you ruined the take by saying that at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so... You see, like, he does oh, this man. whole thing,
0: and he even lands right next to his wife and his kid mm. you know, who are watching okay. the jump, and, like, it's a big deal. And so Don Caltweet is now thinking, like, I hope I, can, I still get the jump, and BJ Worth is trying to convince Covey and Glenn, like, oh, let's just get a second take. Like, let's do this. I mean, he did a lot of work. Let's just get a second take in. But Covey and Glenn are like, no, we have the shot. They're still thinking about that train accident from the last movie. Right, yeah. And yeah. they don't want to take any unnecessary risks. They don't want to, you know... Having, have enough they haven't like and it's just an accident even though they have the shot already so they're like we're gonna we're done right we're good um, and, and i mean
1: and that's like i mean even today like when you have big stunts like that like it's really just like you're already oops that, that sounds really loud uh, you're already kind of like you know testing fate by doing it once right so it's like you know the, even today we treat it as like oh no it's like a one and done yeah thing
0: um so everybody's like okay this is fine Except for Don Caltweet. Mm-hmm. he was really eager to jump off the Eiffel Tower. He was, you know, he had put all that work in. He was telling people like, "Hey, I'm going to jump off the Eiffel Tower." You know, he's a young kid, and you know, it's just like a, a yeah.
1: There's a lot about that I would be like, "Yeah, probably we won't do it again."
0: Yeah, but <laughs> like he's like, "Come on, let's do it again. Come on, so I can do it." He he basically has a little bit of a sleepless night thinking about this, <laughs> and finally he calls his friend and says, "I'm going to do this jump off the Eiffel Tower." So he's, he comes up with a plan. He's going to go like the next day at like 3 a.m. He's going to be like, nobody's going to see us. We know how to do it. You mm-hmm. know, We know how exactly how to do it. We'll go. We'll, we'll jump off. Nobody will catch us. Nobody will be on the wiser. Problem is, is that the team has to do shots at the Eiffel Tower. They actually have to shoot Roger Moore and Yeah, Right, yeah.
1: They have to film the rest of the movie. Yeah.
0: So by the time that Don Tweet and his friend jump, John Glenn is at the Eiffel Tower, planning shots. Mm-hmm. The police are there, you know, obviously, when you have a shoot like that, the police are already around, like you know making sure like nobody's sneaking on set right right like yeah, that. Mm-hmm. so John Glenn is on the Eiffel Tower, like oh if we we could have him shooting up here, you know, we're planning shots all of a sudden, he hears a whoop as Don Colll Tweet makes his jump mm-hmm. and he, well, John Glenn looks out like what's going on? He looks out, he realizes. As, John, as uh, Don tweet pulls his parachute, like, what's going on? That Cal tweet, uh did do the jump unauthorized. Mm-hmm. And before, he knew, before Don tweet knew it, he lands. He's immediately arrested <laughs> because the police are there. They, yeah, they see yeah. him jump. And the, the, the French are not pleased. Because yeah. now they're, the first time they're like, okay, well, these were unofficial people. Now they're like, this is someone who is on your team. This is someone we approved to jump. Right. And he did an unauthorized jump. So the production is almost completely shut down, like not just the Paris not just the Eiffel Tower jump, but the, all the Paris stuff is almost shut down. Right. And basically they just B.J. Worth tries his best to kind of save the crew. But Glenn and Cubby's like, you have to fire those guys.
1: Well, I mean, like, think about it from the French perspective. Like yeah. they're they're thinking like, listen, the last thing they need is for the publicity of, oh, somebody jumped off of our national monument to their death to film a movie yeah
0: and they eventually get to shoot the rest of the paris stuff uh and also includes um the chantilly palace in paris Mm -hmm. which is where the horse stables are so in the movie it's mentioned that the palace was originally built by a duke who thought he was going to be reincarnated as a horse I thought this was a detail made up for the movie, <laughs> but in fact, it is an actual truth about So wait, palace.
1: are you saying my horse theory has some credibility? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so in real life,
0: the duke who originally built this palace believed he was going to be reincarnated as a donkey or a horse. Okay. <laughs> so he built, he built this palace so that when he was reincarnated, he would have the perfect place to see. Mm-hmm. So around the palace there's all these weird murals to horses like the stables and and the area are completely like perfect for horses. So they decided to add that little detail to the movie. Mm, wow. Um I have a lot to say about that later. Final thing to talk about is the San Francisco shoot. Um Right. Okay. Cuz uh, obviously with Silicon My mind's
1: trying to like wrap my head around all the where they were at in the movie which yeah. We'll get to the movie. We'll yeah. get, but anyway, yes, there is a at some because point of, they end up in San Francisco because
0: it's around Silicon Valley, right. so eventually mm-hmm. they do need to make the San Francisco. So, um, obviously, when you're getting to a city, you need permission yeah. from you know people, <laughs> the major people. Um, what else
1: can we? What can we jump off of this? City? So,
0: so the mayor of San Francisco at the time, Diane Feinstein, uh-huh. uh, who's currently a U.S. senator, um, was a major fan of the Roger Moore Bond movies, like. She Roger Moore said she was one of the only people that ever told me that she preferred me to Connery. Like Mm. she was a huge fan of the Bond, uh, Roger Moore Bond films. So when they were in they were coming to San Francisco looking to get permission, she was like, Whatever you need, we'll do. Uh so this includes actually setting fire to City Hall. (laughs) Uh So there's a scene where City Hall's on fire. Right. And they pitched this idea to her, like, can we actually, like, set, like, well, we'll be, obviously not really set it, but we'll put some effects on top right. of City Hall uh-huh. and make it look like it's on fire. And she's like, if the fire chief's okay, if he if he's okay with it, I'm okay with it. Yeah, set it on fire, baby. Uh, and so they do, they use, like, steel plates and, like, gas, and they, like, look like City Hall's on fire. So they, they were, like, card blanched, and everything. So they get, they get, they get to go to Fisherman's Wharf, they get to go to the Golden Gate Bridge, um, they get to go basically every full way, access. Full access to San Francisco. Um, they had a stunt driver for it, but the stunt driver was like a little too short. So Roger Moore actually did a lot of. Would you
1: a short to be a stunt driver? Yeah.
0: So Roger Moore did a lot of the driving in the um the uh, fire truck because he had actually had experience with similar vehicles mm-hmm. back when he before he was an actor, right? Um, but he did not do the jump over the bridge, which was an actual film jump. It wasn't a special. I mean, it wasn't like a miniature or anything. They actually had like a had a had a bridge and they. Just put the fire truck at full speed and had it jump across. Mm-hmm. Completely killed the suspension, but again, they paid for the repairs. Yeah, and
1: it's a what? A, what do they call a suspension bridge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Well,
0: they killed the suspension on the fire truck, but it's a suspension bridge. Yes.
1: Well, I was just explaining the context. Yeah, of... Or like a drawbridge. Yeah, drawbridge. Right? Yeah, drawbridge. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. And then because they do, they do shoot at the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um. The one caveat that they have is again, like with Paris. Especially at this time, the Golden Gate Bridge was one of those major suicide areas. People would always jump off the Golden. Bridge. Yeah, that's a big one. So they they were like, "You can film at the Golden Bridge, but we don't want anybody specifically like jumping off." Or I think
1: there's also multiple documentaries about it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're
0: like, "You can film around the Golden Gate Bridge, so but you don't want anybody like, you know, f- falling off or pushing off this the right, bridge right. specifically." So that's why um, it, the blimp is used. Speaking of the blimp, it was an actual um, so part of it was an actual blimp that was. Uh, owned by Fujifilm Mm -hmm. that was around for like, they put around like the Goodyear for like Olympic events and stuff like that. It happened to be in San Francisco when they were doing some pre-production in the city. Um, So they asked like if they could just have it fly past the Golden Gate Bridge Mm -hmm. and it did. So a lot of those really long shots are like that actual Fujifilm flimp. So when they made the Zoran flimp, they decided to make it similar colors. Um so they did film some stuff on the Golden Gate Bridge. They did have two stuntmen like on like the orange girders and stuff. They did have some stuff over there. But a lot of that Golden Gate Bridge stuff, so maybe only 5% of it was on the actual bridge. Everything else was sets and models mm-hmm. on um the the uh so they built like three different Golden Gate Bridge models on the lot of Pinewood in the backstage areas. So a lot of that stuff was done with that. So all this stuff is finished by December. But the 007 stage, the rebuilding, isn't scheduled to be complete until January. So they basically have to take a month off. They edit what they have. Um, they record the song by Duran Duran. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song was, uh, came about because at a film party in London, the lead singer of Duran Duran came up to Covey Broccoli, somewhat drunk, and said, when are you going to get a good band to do one of these, one of these movies? And Cubby's like, well, why don't you guys do it? Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure.
1: And then the next morning, they're like, fuck, I think we have to do a Bond song. (laughs) Well, it's funny. It's funny. (laughs) All hungover. It's funny
0: in two things. One is that the band, especially the lead singer, was very big fans of John Barry, who's doing the score again, who writes all the songs. Mm-hmm. So Barry was like, "Oh, I'm usually like involved with these decisions. I don't know if I want like this rock band, that's like you know pop band, to be part of it." But they came in and they're like, they like telling Barry things that he doesn't even know about his own music, like all these facts and like, "Oh, I love when you did this thing in this movie." Mm-hmm. So they had a great time working together, and Barry does use the song in the score. The other thing is that this is a number one hit for the Duran Duran. They were big, you know, one of the biggest bands at the time. But this is the last song they recorded before they broke up. Wow. Okay. So maybe maybe there was a little bit of that. I'm like, oh, man, we have to do a Bond song. Let's just get it done, and then we're, we're done.
1: Bond is their Yoko. But
0: finally, the 007 stage opens in January, and Pinewood suggests to Michael G. Wilson that they rename it the Albert R. Broccoli 007 stage, that they name it after Cubby Broccoli. So there's a big ceremony naming it after Cubby. Um, so they finish those mind scenes, um, and they finish production around January uh fifteenth. That is Roger Moore's last shot. And then they f- they destroy the mine scene with the big flood sequence mm-hmm. that they have. So they have like cables that people hold on to that make it look like they're, you know, being pulled back but actually on a safe, you know, safe way. And basically they just kind of do that one it's a one take flood scene and basically destroy the mindset. But the 007 stage is brand new and View to a Kill has concluded filming it eventually will come out.
1: All right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. They made this movie. They made the movie. So let's just get into talking about it. Yeah. Except I have to go to the bathroom real quick, so we'll take a, we'll take a legitimate break. Yeah. So I can do that. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's rather neat, don't you think? Brilliant.
1: I'm almost speechless with admiration. Intuitive improvisation
0: is the secret of genius. And we're back with whatever quote I choose because I can't remember any quotes from this movie. Mm -hmm. So I got to figure out which one we're going to do because this is View to a Kill.
1: So, full disclosure, I had seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. So I was familiar with it. So, this watch was mostly for a, you know, Refresher,
0: refresh, and like, like, and like, you know, and and maybe even taking like, is there anything you can grab from it now that you've binged? You know, we've watched them in order. Like, is yeah, because before you, you know, you hadn't seen a lot of mores. No, no, not so at all. Well, yeah, that was probably one of your, you know a more that was your first one of your. First yeah, Moore's.
1: only it was only this and uh, Man with the Golden Gun that, that I seen. had seen. Um, and I will be completely honest in saying that I watched this movie on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a real reason for that. Yeah, it, that it, this
0: movie stinks. I here's the thing.
1: I don't know. I don't even think it stinks. I just think it's so
0: ugh. It's just so... But, it's but that's man. why... It, to me, that's why it, it stinks. <laughs> like, when I think about talking about this movie, yeah. there's, like, maybe, like, one or two, like, really redeeming qualities to it, like, at most. Like, there's just, like... It's a nothing movie. Well, here's 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 the thing. Because I had this thought
1: about, like, maybe 15, 20 minutes in, that I'm like, all right, well, you know what? Maybe... I'm just kind of like I had seen it, and I kind of have other things on my mind, so maybe I'm not really giving the the credit it deserves, and maybe it is just solid, and it's one of those like we'll watch it, and you know maybe maybe it's just a solid Bond movie, mm-hmm. but there's so many key factors in it as it moves along that especially after rewatching it, there were so many times that I, I had said to you, it's like fuck, we're not at this part yet, we're not at this part yet, and then, like there's and. It all hinges on one major thing, and I bring this up every time we talk about this movie. Yeah. Um, that it centers around that the audience knows the bad guy's plan fairly early into the movie, and then the rest of the movie is Bond operating to not knowing what the plan is, mm-hmm. but to know other narrative effects. So you know what I mean. So it's like so we're watching Bond trying to figure out this plan or operate under not knowing this plan, but the audience knows it. But there's no benefit to the audience knowing what the plan is. It's it's crazy, and you know, and then and then outside of that, you know, yeah, you know, and and outside of that, like the set pieces and the you know where Bond goes really aren't that interesting. And
0: it it also to me it also has like partly like. The Thunderball problem, but, like, worse, where, like, the first, like, th- first half of this movie really, like, just doesn't have to do anything with anything. Mm-hmm. It's, like, the first, I mean, well, well, the first half of this movie is all about Bond, like, investigating Zorin. Right. Um, for, like, this horse racing scandal. Well, well. But, like, but well, like, it just doesn't have to do anything. But, like, we'll, we'll get more in specifics. But, like, part of it is that, like, the first half of the movie just, like doesn't play anywhere into the plan it doesn't play anything into like any of the character stuff and like anything like that like not even that there's no bond girl there's there's no really well, she
1: doesn't show up until really like, late yeah the movie. so
0: but that's what i'm saying there's like there's like you could really just cut down that first part of the movie and you wouldn't have any changes even from the get-go it was kind of like okay, I, like, I feel
1: like this was the first time I'm like, all right, I, we've seen this before.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like we've done a lot of snow stuff, but there's nothing really, like other than the snowboarding thing, which we'll talk about in a second, there's nothing really unique. It's right. a lot of it. It's just like, oh, Bond, you know, it's like stuff we've seen in For Your Eyes Only and Spy Who Loved Me. It's Bond on skis. And, right, right. And like, you know, being chased by Russian people, like shooting at him. And, oh, there's like cool, you know, sh- snow shots and stuff.
1: Except this time, he maybe invents snowboarding.
0: Yes, potentially. Um, so yeah, so he takes like you know he like takes like a little rudder thing, right? And like, and then he starts snowboarding as not even the original version, a cover version. Yes, of the Beach Boys' <laughs> "California Girls" starts playing. This is really weird because this is so out of character for a Bond movie. Right, right. Like, this like this does not happen any other Bond movie. It's because. Cause then it goes from California girls and then it goes goes back to the main action scene that, right, that, right. Uh, that John Barry has, which I'm gonna say right now, the one truly redeeming quality of this movie for me is John Barry's score. It's mm-hmm. like I like the main like the main action theme. I do like a little bit of kind of the interstill stuff. I was listening a little bit to it like yesterday, just mm-hmm. on its own. Like Barry's score is good for this movie, but like again, already there with that California girls reference. Which again is like so out of character for these Bond movies. Yeah, it, it's just it's just weird. it's just like it just already is like trying. I think it's just not setting a great tone. So, so getting
1: into the movie. All right, so here here comes my bit where I explain the with the a plot with the plot of the movie. Yeah. So and and this one is fairly easy because they they're very explicit on what the yeah. plan is. So basically, Max Zorin. Zorin my name's Max Zorin who that was a story that you didn't mention that I know about so like real quick before I get into the plot there's a uh, there's um what do you call it when there's like not a warning but there's like the the words at the beginning what do you call that oh like a, like a uh, yeah like a, like a disclaimer a disclaimer there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the movie that says like this movie like the name Zorin is unaffiliated. With this movie, it's a completely different context or whatever. And my understanding of it, and you can probably uh, clarify yeah. this, is that Zorin is the name of a like a jewelry or fashion makeup company? Yeah, so like it's
0: the Zor- Zoran company. Zoran, Okay. So Zoran. So it's basically the same thing except with an A instead of an I. Right. So Max Zoran is an I, Zoran is an A. They are like a jewelry company that happens also to be based out of Silicon Valley. Right. Um.
1: So, but like, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but it was one of those things where somebody threw up some sort of stink at some point yeah, that caused like, that. And it was, like, it was pretty- Because they didn't want like, this jewelry company is the yeah, bad guy yeah, of- um, um, uh, it, and also
0: it, it it did happen pretty late into production it was realized like pretty well and like that's not something that's hard to put in right. but it was pretty much like a, like a couple probably like I just a month think or it's... two before the before the the, the movie came out but yeah but max um, Zorin.
1: so max Zorin's plan ultimately is that he wants to control he wants a monopoly on the world's microchips Mm -hmm. and they've developed all these microchips and he wants a monopoly on that and in order to get that monopoly on it he wants to destroy the place that makes all the microchips so that's why he's going to flood it's it's such a ludicrous plan yeah because there's so much wrong with it logically And it's so over the top. So his plan is to flood Silicon Valley so they won't make any more microchips so that he has the monopoly over the microchips. Meanwhile, he's also a guy who <laughs> does come from a line of, like, genetically... Right. He, yeah. He's, like, making, like, horse steroids and yeah. genetically, like, making these kind of... Uh, as being, improving. By like, the way,
0: as being developed by his assistant who... Is a former Nazi scientist within the context of the movie? Yeah, yeah,
1: that was crazy, and and uh, didn't we call him like Nega Q? Like yes. he looks like an evil Q? Yeah,
0: because we, we, at one point, like we were just like, there's just a scene where like him and uh, the the Nazi scientist guy and Zoran were like confiding, like, "Oh, our plans, our plans gonna gonna come together." Yeah, um, and I love it when a plan comes together. And uh, we were joking that like in that moment, like he just looked like he was like. Zoran's Q. Yeah, he did. And then, like, he, he did was just, like evil mega Q.
1: But so he, so that's his. So they imply. Well, they don't imply. They say like he makes like these these things to genetically enhance horses. Like in he puts, which he
0: puts microchips in the horses. Yeah, that, like gives them a shot of adrenaline.
1: Yeah, and and which they also imply that they kind of they may have done that to Mayday too. That made her. Yeah, the implication is like she's also enhanced. And then I think at one point they also suggest that he's been enhanced but intellectually yeah like he's given like a horse brain or something and that's what makes him smarter
0: maybe maybe not that specifically. they gave him a
1: horse brain that's why i say like, this movie would be so much better if like he was on a ticking clock like and then he was turning into a horse and like he,
0: and he's like looking at his hand and it's like coming like it's coming together turning into, he's like he's becoming a hoof i'm running out of time i'm
1: turning into a horse
0: uh, well and then also there's also an element of zoran's backstory that he's trained by the kgb um yeah so there's so
1: many implications about his background so anyway so that's his ultimate plan that that's his background and then meanwhile so we know that's happening and the rest of the movie is just bond navigating all of these overly complicated elements to the story mm-hmm while we know what the plan is, and there's no reason for us to know what the plan is, really, and then let me get to the obvious, the elephant in the room, that Zorin's plan makes no sense.
0: <laughs> Even though it was apparently studied again. Yeah, and
1: then, well, no, because maybe the destroying Silicon Valley thing, maybe, Yeah, but... Which is still super weird. I can't get over that. It was like a study somebody did. But like even... I think it was like famously even like... Was it Roger Ebert called this out? Yeah. About how the villain's plan makes no sense. Because like the movie is insinuating that Silicon Valley develops and makes microchips. Like... No, they would technically be the people who would need microchips because they're developing computers and software yeah. and stuff like that. It's like you know, in like you know, in the the eastern countries that are making microchips, Jesus. <laughs> they're like they're the ones doing it. Like so, right. like Roger Ebert famously said, it's like you're you're killing the your client, not your competition. Yeah, <laughs> like so, and it's it's so. And then, on top of that, the just the notion of flooding the entire section of California. yeah, is' just it, it's so ludicrous. it's it's so. And then to top it all off, which makes it even worse, that why it really doesn't work is that it's not even peak walking. No,
0: it's not. You're going to this movie like yeah, Christopher walking in a Bond movie, but like it's still like lower key walking. Yeah, like like it's again, like, it's Batman
1: still- Returns walking is like Bruce Wayne. Why are you dressed up like Batman? Like
0: it's like <laughs> like we don't even get we don't even really get no. that. You you get like a couple lines here and there where he's like Mister Bond, you amuse me, <laughs> and then he doesn't, and then I know this is skipping way
1: ahead, but then he just kind of like dies a very anticlimactic <laughs>
0: death. Yes, he does.
1: <laughs> like it's this weird str- so they end up on top of the Golden Gate Bridge and they're fighting each other, which was another story I did know about about how they had more of a fight scene planned, but they couldn't do that because that was like the one thing they weren't really allowed to do. Yeah, they yeah. weren't allowed to do a big fight scene, so it's more when you look at the movie it's more of like they're just kind of like struggling struggling yeah. and wrestling with each other. Yeah. So, so they're just wrestling for a little bit and it's so quick and anticlimactic that I just look down to write like a note or something, yeah. And then by the time I looked up, his body was already falling, falling. Yeah, and and then, I was like, "Oh, was that that?" Because then been like, him.
0: The, again, because again, like it's falling, and then like the Nazi scientist guy is like, "My lover is dead." Like that's like how he reacts. Yeah, so He's there's just,
1: this weird shot in the movie where I'm like, "Wait, are they lovers?"
0: Well, no, because because because. <laughs> Yeah.
1: because like I don't know, like how horses roll. Like, do horses just? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, he's part I mean, horse. Him mean him,
0: him and Mayday were getting it on. And right then, then maybe the Massey side. All right, so I
1: Mayday's sold. definitely like a horse, right? <laughs> like, was she a horse that they turned into a human? <laughs> I, I'll go. I'll was? go with that headcanon. cannon.
0: <laughs> um, there's this whole part of the first movie where like they go to the horse races and Zorn's there, and, and they're like, oh, like how do Zoran's horses always win? They're not part of this bloodline. Let's investigate. And, like, you're, you know, in a normal movie, like, it would be, like, an actual, like, oh, the horses are part of the plan somehow. Right. But they're not. No, They're no. not part of the plan at all. They basically discover, oh, he's putting microchips to put adrenaline in them, and then that's it. Yeah. Like, there's there's nothing about, like, it's part of his, like, get to get money to buy the micro. No, no, it's nothing. It's this,
1: like, it's this huge front for an even more ludicrous thing. Well, it's like a, like he, it's not like, oh, he's part of like a I don't know, like this is this is lame, but like he, he like he's buying all the mining companies or something, which would lead into Yeah, but like, like, yeah. but there's
0: nothing like that. It's like legitimately the first hour or so of this movie is just like you could just cut it and like it wouldn't mean anything to the plot. <laughs> it wouldn't. <laughs> all this stuff of Bond like sneaking around this weird horse stable place having sex with Mayday, like none of it, none of okay, it, so, none of it ha- makes sense. I'm
1: glad you bring this up because this was the thing where I, it wasn't so much like, oh, like it's gross that this old man is doing this. It wasn't that. But where it stands out is two things. One is that the Bond girl, it does look significantly younger, yes. which if I remember was like the final straw for why Roger Moore didn't yeah, want we'll to ta- be. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk yeah, about exactly. that. The, and we'll talk about that in the aftermath. Yeah. But, but the biggest one for me was that So Mayday and Zorin, like, Zorin, like, leaves Mayday off at her her quarters, in her room, and she opens the door up, and Bond is just naked in her bed, presenting
0: himself like a fucking gift. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Like, and then I'm like,
0: what is this? Well, and, like, the other (laughs) thing about this movie, weirdly enough, it's never really gross, but this is also, like, noted as, at the time, like, the record for most Bond, like, women that bond gets together with right right because he has like there's a random girl in the opening sequence that he just like beds at the end of the opening sequence there's mayday there's oh Tom. there's the agent yeah yeah so the agent is a very interesting thing it was originally intended it was originally pissed to be pitched to be anya from spy who loved Me. right yeah that's so what I was it was originally yeah. pissed to be anya uh barbara brock did not want to come back for it did not want to do a cameo mm-hmm. so they decided to create like a new agent character that bond had met over the years mm-hmm. um but he gets together with her in that round. So it's like there's four women that he gets together with in this movie. And that was at the I think at the time the record. I don't know if it's still the record to this day. I don't know if, if uh uh Dalton definitely doesn't. I don't know if, if I don't know if Brosnan goes on a sex spree in one of his movies, but we'll see. Let's talk about Tony Roberts, Stacey Sutton. Um So eventually Bond makes his way to San Francisco. You know
1: what? I did like one of her introductions I did like because they were going to they played with the whole like oh she's like in the shower and Bond's gonna like come in and be like hey nice shower you got there but then it's like then she's like actually behind him with a gun <coughs> yeah and I was like oh that's that's kind of clever yeah
0: um but so she's she, Stacy Sutton as played by Tony Roberts uh is this the daughter of like an oil tycoon that Zorn bought out right right and- which
1: makes more sense in. You know, th- with what the plot is, yeah, like the whole like buying out this oil company, yeah, yeah,
0: um, and she's like basically suing Zoran for all he's got, and she's like at the last of her money, so she's like the state geologist for the she's she
1: sold all of her like every all the furniture in her house and everything, where yeah. she has a pretty empty house, and she's the state geologist, yeah, to, to make a few bucks on the side, I guess,
0: and like. God bless Tanya Roberts when she has that scene where she has to like say all this geological stuff to talk about like how the the Silicon Valley would flood. Mm -hmm. She tries her hardest to sell it, but there's so much like geological nonsense like just being said in that scene that like it's just like not. But there's also
1: but there's no need to explain it. Like we get it. Like we
0: get it. Like he's going to do something that explodes it's like that whole scene is put together to make it like oh yeah no she is a state geologist because she knows all these big words but it, it feels like like that's not how you would say it You'd right, be like, right oh like he's gonna blow these two faults off so there's a, a mega earthquake <laughs> like basically that's all you need to say but like it's it's legitimately like a three minute scene of her like saying all the biggest geological words you know <laughs> then she's also involved with like the mayor who's like corrupt apparently because like he, he might be in zorn's pocket because like like she tries to bring up like this weird thing is going on with Zorn, and she gets fired. Right. I will say again, I did kind of thought, think that the elevator fire thing was pretty cool. Like the yeah, way that was the, the cool. Way, yeah. The way they yeah. did it. That's like maybe the one thing. But what? So, so eventually they make it to the rooftop. Uh huh. And they're climbing down the ladder. Yeah, yeah. This is funny. And um. You know, in in these Bond movies, traditionally Barry like will play like the the opening song as part of the score. Like mm-hmm. he'll whenever Barry especially does it, uh, he'll he'll use the opening song and he'll like weave it into the score. And this is where he you know because he was thinking because the song if "You Do a Kill" features. The lyric into the we dance into the fire. He's right. like, oh dance
1: like. into the fire. So he
0: thought, oh, like when they're climbing down from the fire, this would be a good place to put that, like in the score. Yeah. But the way it's the way he arranges it, it's like this big, epic, sweeping, like romantic kind of like version of it. Right, which right. Which makes it seem like this is like the climax where like Bond and, and Tanya have had this like epic, like Titanic esque romance. Right. Yeah. Like, well, no,
1: but. but- well, no, but 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 more so than that, but even, like, on screen, it's, like, they're on this, and I'm not saying, like, it's going to be completely safe, like, things can still go wrong, but they're on, like, this pretty sturdy, functional ladder, like, like, la- like, like
0: Like fire elevator. Yeah, fire truck ladder.
1: ladder. And it's not like they're kind of, like, you know, tiptoeing down, like, this thin piece of board. Like, they're on, like, a ladder with railings, and then yeah. it's like, oh, no, like, no, you're not, you're not going to fall. And then you have, like, the, the chase scene throughout. San, San Francisco, Francisco, which is like, why are we doing this? Um, she is, and speaking of her real quick, like, listen, God bless her. She, that character is so useless in this movie. Yeah, I, I want to give credit because, and to be fair, I was kind of like in and out. Did I miss something where she has more use? Like, did, does she like, other than like explaining to Bond, like, this is what's going on. Like, d- does she pretend? participate in any other thing i'm trying to remember like no uh, i'm like, trying
0: I, like i'm no because like because like this is a bad
1: example but like let's say like you had like a like a like a computer expert and then like at the end it would be like all right like she can hack into the you know right, what i mean yeah. like no, d- but, does but she do we, anything we, like we've that seen, we've
0: seen that stuff type of stuff before too. right right um like and like again like past couple bond movies like even like even at the end like as he as as nothing as Octopussy was like she still gets involved in that final fight at the end and like right, still right. gets to help out right yeah uh no like i'm trying to think cuz like cuz she's going in right she she they go in they she explains everything well because once she tries to get to the mayor she's fired by the mayor then she falls in that elevator shaft then let's see then they go to the mine she figures out the map she doesn't really do anything in the mine cuz that's all bond i think um and then they're just escaping through the Golden Gate Bridge, and she almost falls off. So, no, I don't I don't think she really has much. Like, and and I'm, they I'm,
1: introduce I'm, her as, like, this whole, like, uh, well, it's funny because we just got finished watching Looper, and they do the same exact thing in Looper. Yeah. This, where she, like, shows up where she's like, I'm going to blow your head off. But then you find out that it's only, like, rock salt and right. the thing. And it's like, she she can't kill anybody. Yeah. She's, she's just as useless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, um, so, well
1: so you know what we, we There may be nothing for me to talk about this movie. Well
0: there's one thing we should talk about. Okay. And that we really haven't really mentioned at all is Morris Bond in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um here's the thing to me. I do feel like he looks older in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just feel like there's just he, Oh, he, he just, does he, look older. He, he looks a little worn down. He looks like he just looks like not he's not as energetic as he has been even in octopussy oh
1: uh, i mean yeah i mean i guess that wouldn't be unfair to say i mean here's the thing i i just feel like i because i just knew this movie as everybody's like oh he's so fucking old and i i don't think he like it wasn't like off-putting in that way where he was like too old to do it and i i still think he has some of my favorite i think he just has a comfort in the role where i'm just kind of like into yeah I, it. I
0: think he still slips in but it's a. I also don't think like this script too is helpful to him. Well, it,
1: it's it's starting to become. It was the same thing with Connery, where it's um, it, it's just starting to show that they're just not doing that much with the character. Yeah, like of Bond, which after it, how many more movies has this? So been? this is seven. Yeah. So, he, so it's like so, after seven movies, so, but, it's kind of like so all right, let, let's yeah, because yeah.
0: he he he's this is seventh, and this is the fourteenth movie. So he's been in exactly half of them now, um, and he, he's he's. Ben and him more than anyone else. And I think there's just, yeah, there is a level of comfort. I mean, that being,
1: lo- that being said, in terms of just like an actor being in the role, like Moore actually may be one of my preferred bonds still to yeah. this day. Yeah.
0: And it's just, but I think like, I just think like there's, there's, there's something missing from this one for me. It's just like, there's, oh, 100%. Like yeah. There's, there, for his performance, there's just that, there's that lack of spark that, that really like even defines like, even as much as I don't like Man with the Golden Gun, he still has that spark in that movie, and mm. he still like makes it really watchable. And I and I think it's too. It's again like, you know, he doesn't have that many like quips except for one. So at one point, so they're in the Eiffel Tower fight. Yeah. Um. You know, before that, they're in like the big uh, Jules Verne restaurant that was at the Eiffel Tower. Um. And he has like a a a contact he's with, like Mm -hmm. like an ally.
1: Oh, are we gonna talk about the butterfly dance? Yeah. So yeah. So there's a (laughs) singer.
0: She's doing a weird butterfly dance, and which
1: apparently this is a real thing. Yeah. Like this is like so this woman stands like stands on this stage and kind of like has like she's puppeteering butterflies.
0: Well, and then like there's also puppeteers around the whole room. Right. It's
1: the most bizarre entertainment i've ever seen dinner yeah it's so like
0: so basically what happens is that mayday sneaks in and you know kills one of the guys or like uh, shoots him with a butterfly yeah and so she she fly fishes the ally yeah and like Hit, like kills him
1: yeah it's like a shuriken butterfly it's like a yeah. and
0: then and then bond is like chasing after her but he makes some quip about like how he died like oh like he, uh,
1: he said there was a fly in his soup <laughs>
0: yeah there's a fly in his soup which
1: a is not a good pun no. for what just happened and,
0: and b you know i get that when you like have a bad guy yeah could like, die right because you're like in the moment and like he's like he's he's probably like a, you know he killed some people or something like that and he's like you're like oh yeah i've got you know there was a fly in his soup and like it's a bad guy, so it's like, ha, oh, it's funny. This dude was like really friendly to you. He was giving you information. You're right, like, right. He was a generally good dude. Like, you don't need to make a quip about his death. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's just like Mike Moore doesn't even have good like a lot of great quips in this movie. Like you know, he doesn't really get the play to his strengths of like the looks and the eyes and stuff. It's just like it's just not there. Yeah. And it like in and it and and again like if if you had that at least like maybe you had like more of a through line it's just like again it's like more last performance it's entertaining but it's just it's just not yeah. and like this is just a nothing movie and it's hard for me to say it's anything more than my least favorite because like I I before, like for for right now I would say like man with the golden gun it would like was like at the bottom of my list like personally But, again, like, I was thinking... Oh, I think
1: Man with the Golden Gun is way better than this movie. Oh yeah, No, it is. Yeah.
0: It is. Because, like, at least, like, again, I can take things I like from the movie. I can take Christopher Lee. I can take, like, you know, certain elements of, like, Moore's performance in that movie. Mm -hmm. I can take, like, that scene where he gets the the 3 finger gun and all that sort of stuff. Like, this one is just, like, I, like, legitimately, other than the score and maybe that, like, just a little bit of that fire elevator scene and, like... There's really nothing I can personally take that there's like, there's absolutely no reason why i would want to watch this movie again like there's none
1: um, I, I did write down this one note um well two notes actually you have two uh, notes exactly so there yeah i wrote down two notes during this whole movie uh this was a movie that explained what an emp was
0: <laughs> yes it was which cause, i cause... always
1: point out and joke about
0: will will yeah this is a, this is a favorite thing of will like... so
1: a running gag in movies in my life is that i love movie i judge a movie this is partially kidding uh but i judge a movie based off of if they explain what an emp is in an emp i'm i guess I'm about to explain it is an electromagnetic pulse and it's like an energy thing that like you know knocks out all the electricity in the area yeah. it's like a common action movie sci-fi thing that people have to explain yeah, yeah but they always have to explain what it is and I remember that I think it was in like 2014's Godzilla where they don't explain what it is yeah. like they give like the most simplistic kind of like throwaway explanation of it but mm-hmm. they don't really like um, and, then the, and then another terrible thing is the forced uh, ins- insert of the title in the movie when Mayday and Zorin are looking out, out of their blimp and then she's like, What a view and then Zoran's like, To a kill. <laughs> what? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, I mean this is uh the I I don't I wouldn't go as far as to say like I probably dislike it as much as you. Like I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it stinks, but it, it, stinks. It, it, it is very and then I don't know, it may be one of those when I look at the list it may end up fairly low yeah um oh there's also At, a robot dog in this
0: oh yeah because that's also the weird ending they, tr- they try to do that ending that they've been doing with like 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 free eyes only and moonraker but it's like
1: they're always catching bond having sex
0: right well it's like it's like there's a robot dog and q's like outside the house and they're having sex in the shower or like making out in the what? shower but
1: what is that dog for like how does it get
0: upstairs well, it's, it's a prototype for what? For a spy dog? I got. I don't know. It's a prototype. Oh my god. Q just likes making things. What it
1: looks like? It looks like a toaster with a dog head on it. It's the most impractical spy device ever. Yeah.
0: But yeah, yeah the, that's the, all. The, to I to me, I just like the, before we get to the aftermath. I just want to say that like I can't rank it higher than anything because any, every other movie that we've seen, I can pull like two or three great like things that I do like about it. This one I just other than the score I really can't. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, so let's get to the aftermath because we got some top we got some stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the movie does come out it uh, premieres in um, the United States uh, in the May twenty second nineteen eighty five in San Francisco. Mm. Um, there's a big uh, celebration. Uh, they th- it's actually one of the first Bond premieres to be held in the United States as opposed to the UK, um, and they um, actually made a, a, a donation of a hundred thousand seven dollars so one thousand double (laughs) one hundred thousand double oh seven dollars uh to charity on behalf of the uh the san francisco mayor and and the uh you know the the team there and thanks of how much they helped Uh, and then eventually does release worldwide later in june um the movie made a hundred and fifty two million dollars worldwide uh which is still very successful, but again a, a much more significant step down than what they've been achieving. It would had been you know closer to the you know one one hundred eighty million one ninety million f- one you know for the past couple. this is a big step down. so it seems audiences you know weren't as into you know another more film mm-hmm. uh and this movie was critically derided mm-hmm. upon release, yeah, definitely the worst remo- reviewed movie since man with the golden Gun. Um a lot of people did mention Moore's age in this movie. Um I'll have one review because I have a little more to talk about in mm-hmm. the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Uh but the uh Washington Post critic said Moore just isn't long into tooth. He's got tusks, and what looks <laughs> like when what like looks like an eye job has given him the pie eyed blankness of a zombie, he's not believable anymore in the action sequences, even less in the romantic scenes. It's like watching a woman fall over Gabby Hayes, yeah. which is that like old timey prospector guy you'd see in all those like fifties mm-hmm. movies. Even Sean Connery was asked about it, and he said, um, Bond should be played by an actor 35, 33 years old. I'm too old. Roger's too old, too. And uh, in 2007, Moore said in an interview, I was only about 400 years too old for the part. Right. Um,
1: which, so, which leads, are you going to tell the story about yeah. like what was kind of like the, yeah, the straw but, that broke the camel's back? Before
0: that, though, I do want to mention something quickly. Mm-hmm. before Because we, we're going to just have a little bit of talk about just a little bit of Moore's legacy. Mm-hmm. But I do want to mention that this is the final Bond appearance of Lois Maxwell as Money Penny as well. Mm. Um, Sick so, of their shit. <laughs> well, we, we, we're going to still see Money Penny. Yeah. But uh, it's just significant because Lois Maxwell, as of this point, is the only person that appeared in all 14 Bond movies. Okay, good on her. In, she was in Dr. No and appeared. Even Q uh, hasn't appeared in all the movies, of course. Um, I, other than Bond, of course. By the way, Bond has appeared in all these movies. Um She pitched to Cubby that she wanted to be the new M. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Cubby just said, We're just going in a different direction. Right. And they had like a nice little dinner conversation about how they were the only two left from truly from Dr. No. And I mean, Lois was always loved doing the movies. I mean, she only had like an hour total of screen time over her 14 appearances and probably even like only like 200, you know, 200 lines or so. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, it's just. She's one of those recognizable parts of the Bond franchise, and I want to say just for Lois's part, I loved her. I've always loved her performance as Money Penny, even if it wasn't always the greatest scenes. Um, and uh, I do feel like the way they took it in, like those more movies, where she's more like a friendly person as mm-hmm. opposed to like them actually having that sexual tension. I think was fine. Uh, but
1: I mean, I guess I should have an opinion about that. Uh, yeah, no, she's she's good. And um,
0: again, like despite what the material gives her, I felt like she was always. Gave, it, gave a line well. So I just want to mention that because I think it's important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, but yes, yeah, so this is the final appearance of Roger Moore as Bond. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple reasons that Moore didn't decide to leave. One is his age. It wasn't just the fact that he was like much older than Tanya Roberts. He found out that he was older than Tanya Roberts' mother. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's like if I'm older than the leading lady's mother, I think it's time for me to go. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then like, he really didn't have a lot of fun on View to a Kill. He did not... At the end of the day, he ended up not liking the script. He didn't like the movie. He felt there was a little bit like... Like the violence we, in the movie. Some of the stuff that he just didn't enjoy. Mm-hmm. At the end of the, at the end of production, he finally tells Cubby Broccoli, this is it. I'm not coming back. And and Broccoli's like, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I, Broccoli had the sense too that like he... If Moore didn't want to leave, he was going to ask Moore to, to step down. Because right. everybody... Kind of felt at this point, like it was ultimately Moore made the decision, but it was everybody felt at this point that it was time to move on. Right. Yeah. So Moore's legacy, it's interesting because Moore as a performer is really fantastic, and I've loved kind of rediscovering even in those early like ones that it's a little rough around the edges. You know, it's he's always. Ex- most of the time he's just like he has a spark, he has an energy, he 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 really holds those movies together. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to kind of ignore, at least on my list, that he has like stuff like Man with a Golden Gun, Octopussy, uh, View to a Kill, even to an extent Live and Let Die, like he has like a lot of those of his bonds are lower on my list. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to ignore that like even when his performance is great, yeah. He's in some of the weaker Bond movies. But to to that extent, that middle period of more so, Spy Who Loved Me, which is obviously my favorite so far, um, Moonraker, which is a very enjoyable movie, and Four Your Eyes Only, which is my favorite rediscovery we've had. It's in my top five now, and it's I think it's fun. Like that middle period stretch is like really good for more, and it's really like those films are like Moore's really all together shows more strength. Is is humor. This physical nature, the, like, the the looks he gives, you know, the way that he, he moves through the action, I think he's always been great. Um, especially in those when he has, you know, those less gross Bond movies of, like, you know, the way that he actually gets together with women. He's, his charm really helps out and makes an effect on it. And I think that he doesn't, a lot of people will still put him as, like, their worst Bond mm-hmm. because they, they have that perception of him being so silly. And I don't think he deserves that. I mean, again, again, it can be hard for people to ignore that he is in some of those bad, bad Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Like, he has, he has a significant chunk of them are, you know, his bad Bond movies. But I feel like he, as a performer, is just one of the most fun to watch in the Bond franchise. And it's hard to, for me to, like, not rank him, you know, I, I can't rank him last mm-hmm. because I just enjoy him too much.
1: I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, for me, in terms of... Well, we've only seen... Well, we've seen three actors, technically, (laughs) thus far. Moore is my favorite um, as an actor for Bond. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that... You know, I like Connery in the role. I've never been as devoted to to him. I think he kind of, like... I think Connery is very much of what people think as what is kind of now, for lack of a better term, the cliché of Bond. Mm -hmm. Like, where it's just, like, very, like, just... Very, just very James Bondy smooth and, you know, very, like, always quick with a quip and then things like that. Where I don't know, I think, like, there was more of a. I don't know, Roger Moore's Bond to me felt like a real dude in many ways. And maybe because there was more of a performance playful nature to him. And I think. And he also didn't, like, again, hmm. he didn't seem, even though, like, what he did, I always joke about, he's kind of an asshole. Like, he didn't come off as an asshole to me. Yeah. (laughs) Even though what he did was an asshole. But, like, like Connery can come off as an asshole. Yeah. Like when, because my thing about even into this movie, more, even if he wasn't into it, kind of seemed like he was still coming in and doing the like you know the best he could. Seemed to have a good attitude about it. Where yeah. we said that when Connery was checked out, he was checked out.
0: Yeah. I. It, it's a, not. It's more's worst performance. But yeah, in comparison to like Connery, in you only live twice. Right. It's still like. Above that, right, and um, and I
1: think for me, he's more as representative because my under, my knowledge of the legacy is like this era of Bond is that everybody considers to be like the jump the shark era yeah. of Bond. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the biggest things I always argue about that I've learned in this podcast is that doing this podcast really highlights the fact that nothing has really ever changed in our movie industry. No. And that I feel like the movie industry from whether it be like actual people who are professionals to just basic film Twitter, that all of film history is made out of retroactive uh, memory of mm-hmm. uh, of how people remember uh, film. And the Roger Moore bonds... And Roger Moore and the Roger Moore bonds are indicative of that where everybody... We'll always say like the Roger Moore bonds are like ridiculous and and, and like silly and dumb. Yeah, and it's kind of one of the ones where it's the lazy. Like everybody always goes to Moonraker, which I would argue that personally, for me, Moonraker is I like a lot more than most Bond movies. Personally, yeah, I, I think Moonraker's I, good. I, I like Moonraker. Yeah. Um, I bet and with the with the Connery movies, I like two of them. Like I would go back and revisit Goldfinger and From Russia with Love. Yeah, those are the ones I really like. But then there's ones in the Roger Moore one that I would realize Mo- mostly like I-, I always go back to like I really enjoyed Moonraker if I'm gonna be honest yeah. but it's one of those things that doing all these movies like there was stupid shit in the Connery movies oh of course yeah like no, very I, soon because like,
0: people yeah people will perceive people again will say like oh this is when like more like more more films are when and they just go like over the top but like no like the Connery films like especially if you watch like you know You, you Only Live Twice and Diamonds especially I think and it's and even Goldfinger like people like discredit some of the silly stuff in that movie well
1: i mean i think it's because like moon it's so surface so, level like yeah. people just kind of like again it's all surface level stuff mm-hmm. people like go to like the moon raker stuff like well he goes to space that's just stupid you yeah. know what i mean because then i feel that's how people treat movies and stories unfortunately even to this day yeah they just like well like that like i had this huge i won't get too deep into it but i had this huge conversation about uh what's it jurassic world coming out where like people just like look at like like for some reason what's going on in that movie where it's like people are buying dinosaurs that's dumb like really is it like go back to like what else has been going on like in the in the roger in the connery movies like you had the jetpack pretty soon which like was really kind of dumb you had like uh like him doing yellow face which was really you had a ninja army yeah like imagine you putting a ninja army in a bond movie today
0: like ridiculed huh It'd be ridiculed. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, like everybody would
1: hate it. So it's like it's one of those things where I realized that where everybody, like Roger Moore's Bond, is that case of what film, you know, communities, kind of how they treat film, yeah. where it's, it's this retroactive history no, it's of like, like,
0: and it's just like, and the thing about Moore too, like, this is to kind of start wrapping up. Well, one thing is that like you kind of mentioned that Moore just feels like an actor and. Like, again, like, one of the things I mentioned back in our Connery retrospective at the end of Diamonds Are Forever is that it's a shame that Connery never got that chance to be, like, that emotional Bond. And it's really fortunate for me that Moore does get that chance at least twice with – definitely with Spy Who Loved Me and, you know, and in For Your Eyes Only, too. Yeah. I think, like, both of those are, like – they really do dive a little bit into that Bond character. And I think those are – I mean, those are two now my favorite Bond movies. Mm -hmm. And, And, I mean, to be
1: fair, I still don't think a Bond movie has yet gone – as deep character wise yeah like so it's not even like the Connery movies had that over these no either. but like
0: these ones go a little bit deeper and I think that yeah. like and more really like in those two films real real more really plays into that yeah and the the other thing about Moore is just how much he loved playing bond even after he retired mm-hmm. like bond like more was always willing to give an interview. He always loved talking about like bond he you know you when he died, you heard all the stories about like how he would you know pretend to be bond for kids right and, right and stuff like that and you know he did a bunch of charity work after after his bond days were over you know for unicef and and it's like it's for me beyond the fact that he always mostly gave a great performance and was always into it and always like made himself really watchable. It's hard not to ignore that like of all the bond actors. He's the one that was that like was into it the most, right? Yeah. Like it's and, it, and there's there's no doubt about that. Like if you, I mean, obviously Connery. If you look at like we'll talk about Dalton a little bit, and we'll we'll. Talk about especially if you know you know the Craig story. Yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's like it's like in terms of the people who enjoy it most, it's definitely between Moore and Brosnan. And Moore is just like he's such a positive energy that it just permeated even in the movies. Yeah.
1: Well, ultimately, like I, I get a massive approval for Roger Moore. It's a shame that you know he doesn't necessarily get to go out on a bang, but yeah. um, but I mean, he gets my approval as my my personal favorite Bond. Yeah, so.
0: I, I think it's been fun to rediscover because mm-hmm. it's I was it's the last word like. Like as a kid, I kind of you know I kind of bought into the hype of like oh Moore the worst Bond, but like you know in my older years and, and rewatching these, it's been like a blast to kind of find more and find how much fun Moore had and how much these films could be fun. Like I I cannot say enough how happy I am to have rediscovered Free *Eyes Only*. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so ecstatic that that movie exists because it's one that I would have never watched. You know before because I was like oh it's a more movie it's a, it's not it's not spy who loved me why would I want to watch for your eyes only but now mm. now I'm going to watch for your eyes only I might watch it right after this I don't know cool um so we got two things to do who is Harrison Ford
1: Oh fuck um who is Harrison Ford uh,
0: Harrison Ford is the new mayor of San Francisco after uh, Zoran kills the old mayor and yeah. he's like we're going to fix all this corruption in our in our government system Yes
1: He's either that or the president of the country club where they're doing the horse races yeah. Well, it's,
0: yeah Yeah. okay yeah fair enough one of those yeah all right so then next we gotta go next time yeah next time oh
1: next time well i mean for bond where are we going
0: it's time
1: oh here we go here we go
0: it's time ladies and gentlemen nick's been waiting for this one for the summer of dalton to begin we only have two dalton movies but i've been so ecstatic to share these with you next time on the bond franchise and
1: i know zero about the dalton i've never seen a dalton movie i don't even think i've seen a frame of dalton as i'm gonna
0: say remember that remember that movie that i said i can't wait for you to see a couple once ago sure one of them is a Dalton movie, sure. So, okay, cool. Uh, but the next Dalton movie, next Bond movie, we are introduced finally to Timothy Dalton, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to talk about in the Living Daylights.
1: Cool, cool.
0: But what about Godzilla?
1: Yeah, I mean, but next time is not a Bond; it's a Godzilla, and um, I'm also very excited week, for this one. Yes, so it's the summer. It's the summer of Dalton, uh, but you know, with a pre, with a little preamble of a Mecha Godzilla.
0: Mecha Godzilla mechanical
1: Godzilla. Um, All
0: right. We're done. I'm done. All right. We got some plugs. Uh, BonzillaPod at gmail.com. Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. Facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. Like, subscribe. iTunes.
1: SoundCloud. Yeah. That's the... Got to get the... Really puff up the cloud bit. So, you did a good job. All right. We're done. We're done. So, I salute you, Roger Moore. Yeah. May you rest in peace because you are my... You are my Bon.
0: Also I didn't tell you about the Q stuff. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, sometimes you just fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye everybody. Bye-bye.